Welcome back to the program. After 9-11 and the onset of the war on terror, it became clear that we might in fact be in a state of permanent war. In some ways, that seems to be the case. What we forgot was that war does not exist in a vacuum. It brings out the best and the worst within us. It forces us to face moral paradox that we might not have to face in times of peace. This was certainly true in World War II, and those are some of the elements that provide the backdrop for Chris Bojalian's new novel, The Light in the Ruins. It's a love story and thriller set in Florence and Tuscany in the waning days of World War II, as well as in the 1950s. But in many ways, it's also a cautionary tale about the compromises we make during war. Chris Bojalian is the critically acclaimed author of 16 previous books, including the New York Times bestsellers The Sandcastle Girls, The Double Bind, and Midwives. It is always my pleasure to welcome Chris Bojalian back to this program, this time to talk about The Light in the Ruins. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, it's always a pleasure, and I absolutely loved your summation of The Light in the Ruins. That was so eloquent and spot-on perfect. Thank you. Thank you. One of the other things about this story is that I, I read that you were inspired in some ways by Romeo and Juliet, really at, at the core of this story, the love story that exists within the Light in the Ruins. That's true. I was watching a production of Leonard Bernstein and Jerome Robbins and Stephen Sondheim's magnificent reimagining of Romeo and Juliet, West Side Story. My daughter was one of the shark girlfriends, so I saw the production a lot. And <laughs> as I was... As I was watching it, I grew entranced and realized that I, I loved this story of doomed lovers and wanted someday to write my own version of Romeo and Juliet. I, I didn't know where it would be set or when. That would come a few years later when I was biking with a friend of mine named Greg Lewandowski in Tuscany. We came up one hill, looked across the valley at the next village, Montisi, and Greg said, you know that granary tower, don't you? It, it used to be about 30 feet higher. This was a granary tower built in the 14th century to rival the great tower in the Campo in Siena. And I said, really, what happened to the top? And my friend Greg said, the Nazis blew it up. They were retreating, and they didn't want the Allies to use it as a spotting tower. And Then he shrugged and said, man, we built things to last 600 years ago. <laughs> um, and, and all of a sudden I realized that, well, of course the Germans had been in Tuscany. I mean, intellectually, I knew they'd been in Italy in World War II, but... When we think of Tuscany, we think of, of cheese and sunflowers and under the Tuscan sun. We think of Chianti, um, not the Nazis. But I knew instantly I wanted to set my Romeo and Juliet in that innermost ring of Dante's Inferno that was Tuscany at the end of World War II. And the Nazis come in and these people in this, this estate really think they're insulated from the war, that somehow it's not going to touch them there in Tuscany, and that's not the case at all. No, no. They do indeed. Uh, the Rusati family is an elegant, rich family. They, you know, it's a Marchese and a Marchesa. Their daughter, their daughter-in-law, and um, their children, their grandchildren, are living on this magnificent palatial villa and estate, while their sons are off in the army. And they do think they are sheltered from the cataclysm that's unfolding around them. And and all that changes when 18-year-old Christina, my Juliet. Uh, makes the mistake of finding the ultimately most forbidden lover, a 22-year-old German lieutenant. It's interesting that their relationship is kind of a microcosm of the larger thing that's going on, because the longer the Nazis stay 
at the, in this estate, the more the whole family begins to, to accept them in a way. It's almost a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome going on. It is. That's so well put. And I, and I love the analogy you made between the Rosati family and, and Italy in generally. Um, one, of the, one of the voices of moral authority in this book, one of the, the moral compasses in this book, is Christina's older sister-in-law, Francesca, who at one point, absolutely disgusted by the way her father-in-law, the Marchese, and her sister-in-law, Christina, are, are becoming increasingly accommodating for different reasons. Christina, because she loves her, her Romeo, her Friedrich Strecker, um, and Antonio, Christina's father, because he doesn't see an alternative. Um, but Francesca at one point says, enraged to Christina, we will pay for this. We will all pay. You know that, don't you? We are commingling with the cowardly angels, which is a reference to Dante. In fact, that is what happens. This is part of the compromises we make during war, and, and we don't really think about what the long-term impact of that is. You know, so much of war, um, I think, is just survival. And in Italy in 1944, there were all of these trends conspiring to make it so hellish. First of all, the Nazis are retreating north after we have liberated Rome, um, and they are scorching the earth. Secondly, the Italian partisans are sprouting up, and so the Nazis, to try to dial down partisan activity, are executing at a Hitler-mandated ratio civilians six to one. For every German soldier killed by a partisan behind the lines, they are lining up six women, children, babies, priests against these 14th century you know, monasteries and granaries and villages and machine gunning them. Um, and um, the, the, I mean, Florence was a battleground. Every bridge but one over the Arno was blown up. Florence, it's hard to imagine. And, of course, the Italians were in the midst of their own civil war with, with the Italian blackshirts, Mussolini's men, fighting tooth and nail with the Italian partisans. So for most Tuscans in 1944, whether you were an aristocrat or a peasant, you were more or less the grass beneath the feet of battling elephants. As one of the characters says in the story, it was almost like a civil war going on within the World War. It was. Yeah, no, it, it really and truly was. And so if you are the Rosati family, on the one hand, you have the Germans descending upon your estate, um, either wanting to literally use it as a battleground or at least have their quartermasters pillage virtually all that you have. Um, at the same time, you have the partisans wanting... Um, whatever you can spare, wanting your cattle or your sheep or, or, or whatever, because um, they're trying desperately to survive in the woods. If the Germans think you're providing for the partisans, they'll kill you. If the partisans think you're collaborating with the Nazis, they'll kill you. We see the consequences of all of this happen years later as we move to 1955 and an investigation. Talk about that. When I was writing the early draft of this book, there was a secondary character named Serafina. Serafina is like my Juliet. Christina, she's 18 years old, but unlike Christina, she's not living on this beautiful estate. She's living in the woods. Her parents and her brothers have already been executed by the Nazis, and she's a partisan, just fighting to survive. Um, I wrote a scene where she was horrifically burned. Most of her right ear is burned off, um, severe burns on her neck and face. It's in a firefight with the Germans, and all of a sudden I fell in love with Serafina as a character, and she became my Lisbeth Salander, my girl with a dragon tattoo, and I wanted more of her. So we're, I began to wonder, what is she doing after the war? And then I reconfigured the book. 
So it moves now back and forth in time. So there can be more Serafina. Serafina and Christina's paths cross most directly in 1955, 10 years after the war, when Serafina is now a homicide detective, the first woman in the Fiorenzi Polizia to be a, a homicide detective. And she's investigating the murders of Christina Rosati's family because someone, for whatever the reason, is murdering them one by one by one. Talk a little bit about that investigation and also the way in which, in ten years' time, the world changes, the world moves on. 1955 Florence is so different from 1945 Florence. In 1945, it's still desperately struggling to rebuild. I mean, again, there's only one bridge in existence over the Arno at the end of the Second World War. Um, this magnificent Renaissance city is, is largely in ruins. By 1955, it is once again becoming a tourist destination. Already, um, um, Europeans and Americans are starting to return to the Ponte Vecchio. There are all sorts of American and, and British investors and investment banks. They're, you know, helping to rebuild and invest in in Italy. I mean, I, I think people discovered very, very early on that Tuscany is kind of Disneyland for grown-ups. And so there are, um, one of the characters in the book is an American banker named Milton in 1955, who is a, a veteran, um, but now he's a, a, an investment banker, and he's part of that, that whole group of expats who are resurrecting Tuscany. And the Florence of 1955 looks a lot more like the Florence of 2013 than it did the Florence of 1944. That's, I think, what, what's so interesting about the way that, um, you know, we do move on. We do somehow find a way to put one foot in front of the other. I look right now at, at cataclysmic Aleppo in Syria, and I, mm-hmm. I'm just devastated by what I'm seeing there. And, and yet, you know, there's always this hope that, you know, 15 or 20 years from now, Aleppo will be the magnificent city it once was. There'll be a Starbucks there. It's what happens. From your personal perspective, living in this world, in Florence and Tuscany, during the process of writing this book, not a bad place to spend a lot of time. It's a great place to spend a lot of time. Um, I don't want to over, I don't exaggerate the amount of time I've been blessed to spend in Tuscany. But because I I do have friends who live there, I bike there in the summers. And it's, it's absolutely a magnificent place to write and to work for me. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, because the Internet is a disaster in the corner of Tuscany where I stay. Um, so I'm, I'm not losing writing time to social networking or answering emails. Even with a terrific AT&T international plan, it, it costs a steamer trunk to talk to the U.S., so no one calls me. So I get up about 6 in the morning. I write uninterrupted till 11 or 11.30. Um, then I'll have a terrific, terrific meal and then go for a long three- or four-hour bike ride during most people's siesta. And then um, with my wife and daughter, we'll go exploring whatever village we want to explore that day or where, whatever city we want, to, we want to go visit. And then I'll do it all again the next day. And I really am quite productive there. For example, um, if I'm in Tuscany for three weeks in the summer, I will write at least twenty or 25,000 words of a novel. Talk a little bit about the, the contrast between writing about the beauty of Tuscany and Florence and all the things we've been talking about, and your last work, where you really were immersed in the world of Armenia and your heritage and all the things that were part of the Sandcastle Girls. I will always 
be immersed in all the things that are part of the Sandcastle Girls. One of the blessings of writing the Sandcastle Girls is the way it reacquainted we with the, the ancestral DNA of my soul. Um, it is among the, it, it, the Sandcastle Girls is the most important book I believe I will ever write. It, you know, as we discussed, it's a, it's a love story set in the midst of the Armenian Genocide. Mm-hmm. My grandparents were both Armenian Genocide survivors. Um, the thing that is interesting to me as a novelist is that my work is at its best when it mines one particular emotion. And I figured out what that emotion was, strangely enough, two months ago when I was watching an episode of Mad Men. I'm, I'm addicted to Mad Men. Mm-hmm. It's a pristine madline to my own childhood. I was alone in my TV room watching um, my wife sound asleep in our bedroom, and it's 10 of 11 at night, and I'm at the edge of my couch, and I'm literally saying to Don Draper's daughter, Sally, don't go back. Don't go into the elevator. Don't go upstairs. And that emotion is dread. When my books work, The Sandcastle Girls, The Light in the Ruins, Midwives, it's because you are emotionally invested in the characters and you are experiencing dread because you fear desperately what's going to befall them. You know that whatever beauty there in the midst of now is eventually going to become ruins. It also brings out, particularly in love stories, it's even more profound, but the kind of existential angst that that is so important to to powerful drama. Sometimes I think we all all spend our lives trying to sublimate the existential angst that is is part of our daily fare. Um, and, and fiction is certainly one one avenue to that sublimation, that escape, not simply as a reader, but, I confess, as a writer. And in love stories, that's even more true, I think, in, in, in many respects. And, you know, I love stories of doomed lovers. Uh, you know, not just Romeo and Juliet, books like Atonement and The English Patient and Sophie's Choice. And what those last three novels all have in common is they are doomed lovers in World War II. There's something about the epic scale and the epic grandeur of love in war. Do I understand that Sandcastle Girls is being turned into a movie? It is being turned into a movie. Um, The screenplay is spectacular. It was written by Eric Nazardian. Um, He is planning to um, be filming it in Spain and in Jordan in 2014. The movie will be premiering um, in time for the centennial of the Armenian Genocide, April 24th, 2015, and I am profoundly excited about that because the Sandcastle Girls has become, for me, a deeply important educational tool to tell the story of the Armenian Genocide to so much of the world that, that really can't find um, most of the places where the genocide occurred on a map, places like Aleppo and Deir Zor and Ras Alain. Part of it also is is the recognition on the part of the world, as we've talked about a little bit, the recognition of that genocide that, that is still, in many places, denied. It is, it is denied. Um, and that's one of the reasons why so many North Americans know very little, if anything, of the Armenian Genocide, because um, Turkey, since 1924, um, and the Auditor government has denied it and has swept it under the rug, and many of Turkey's allies, including the United States, continue to fail to recognize um, that this was the systematic planned governmental annihilation um, of 1.5 million Ottoman citizens in the First World War. Even though your books have certainly been published in so many languages all over the world, how different is it 
when you're thinking about the audience here in America, writing novels that take place in in Armenia or or in Florence and Tuscany, talk about that, whether there's any difference in your own mindset in telling those stories. Um, It comes down to research. A little research goes a long way. Um, And the goal when I'm writing historical fiction, books like The Sandcastle Girls or The Light in the Ruins, is to convey a foreignness without hitting somebody over the head. Um, We've all read books like, you know, um, The Submarine Dove, 110 fathoms, which was exactly 15% deeper than it was designed. You know, no one wants to read a sentence like that. Right. Um, and so whenever I'm writing historical fiction, the goal is to convey what Florence or Aleppo was like in a point in time without it feeling like either a National Geographic travelogue um, or really blunt, blunt fiction. Um, when I'm writing books set in the United States, it feels a little easier to me in that regard because you know, you simply say Fifth Avenue and, and everyone knows exactly what that means. Chris Bojalian, his new novel is The Light in the Ruins. Chris, I thank you so much, as always, for spending time with us today. Jeff, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Chris Bojalian, The Light in the Ruins. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 